What's up guys, this is Corey Baker from Baker Forge and Tool. In my business, we do tons of heavy grinding every single day, and we needed a grinder that could take abuse and keep on trucking without slowing down billet production. The Ameri Braid Variable Speed 2x72 is just that. All heavy duty parts and framing with well thought out accessories that are easy to use and not bogged down with lots of tiny parts. By far the best accessory item that Ameribraid sells is their surface grinding attachment. It is absolutely foolproof and the best in the industry. With quick release magnet system, there is no prying your workpiece off the platen. Very fast to slap a billet or a knife onto the table, engage magnets, and start surfacing with precise increments. On top of all of this, their customer support is outstanding. Eric and Kevin are always available and fast to help with any situation. If you're in the market for a top-of-the-line grinder or maybe just an accessory to add to your existing setup, go to Ameribraid.com and use the code HUSTLE100 for 100 bucks off any grinder package. All right, next up, the Hustle & Grind Podcast. What's going on, everybody? We're back again. It's me, Ryan Chadbourne Knifeworks, here with Noah of the Antioch River Forge. And this week, I'm so nervous for this episode. We have Mareko Mumasi. How's it You're going, man? Up. I yeah, fucked you up did. your last name, didn't I? <laughs> I'm so bad with names. <laughs> Mal, I know your name. Like, like I'm going to mow on some food. Mossy, like, damn, that side of the tree is mossy. Mao Masi. Mao Masi. That's it. I'm such Maybe. a piece of shit. No, you're fine. You're great. Don't worry. Everybody, very rarely does anybody get it right. If you go back through, I misspell people's names all the time when I'm like <laughs> posting the episode and I get messages every time. It's just, I'm sorry. I apologize. You should just it's keep me. it going. You just start, just keep trolling everybody. <laughs> Yeah, we did uh we did a Dennis Tyrell episode in the thumbnail. I put a picture of Lawrence Lake. Oh so, yeah. Because <laughs> he was telling me about that at Maker Camp. Yeah. Uh guess or both so of them, what, I guess, were telling me about that. So what's going on in your world? Not much. Sunday's low key day for us at the house. Um, usually not in the shop. Uh what did we do today? I can't remember what we've been doing today. Just kind of just, yeah, just hanging out as a family. We just finished watching a cheesy-ass old movie from, like, 1995 called Halloween Town. Um, we've been watching a lot of Halloween-themed stuff because my kids really starting to get into it. Uh, last few years leading up to this year, he's been really kind of sketched out about a lot of Halloween stuff. But now he's kind of, like, facing those fears and stuff, which is fun. We're trying to, like, help him along in a... At, at his own pace, but kind of push him a little bit every once in a while. Um, and How then he? after this podcast, actually, I'm getting ready to, uh, I got to pack up the truck and we're headed out to the beach, which is about an hour, two hours from here. That's two hours to the particular beach we're going to, which is Long Beach um, in Washington, not California. And uh, we're going to go clam digging this evening. Uh, and then we're going to stay the night. We have family who happens to have a little cabin out there. And so we'll crash at the cabin. We'll stay the night and then, uh, we'll have a little bit of adventures the next day. And then we're heading home. Awesome. Sounds like a a ton of fun. Yeah, it should be fun. Usually. I mean, so he's seven and the trick with the, the razor clam digging, 
razor clams on the west coast are very different from the east coast razor clams where the east coast razor clams look a lot more and i think other razor clams clams around the country or country not around the country around the world look like straight razors they look like a straight razor like folded up our razor clams look like a giant version of a straight razor <laughs> because they're like upward they can be as wide as two inches wide and like six to eight inches long and like Damn. an inch thick or so <laughs> they're just beefy um they're very different here and so it's fun yeah. to get in there and dig them out but for the most part until the kid is like 15 years old you can do most of the digging with them um they have to be kind of like standing there oops i just punched the mic uh standing there with you holding the clam digging gun or whatever you're using shovel or whatever but then they ultimately have to be the ones that pull it out of the sand because uh, otherwise i think that used to be parents would go out and bring like their two kids and then just limit out for all three of them and i it's fun he likes to get into it and it's some, sometimes he actually grabs like the gooey part of the clam and he freaks the fuck out but <laughs> <laughs> it's all part of the experience but that's awesome uh, other than that knife ways just doing knife stuff making knives forging knives i actually just forged out a little bench knife which is like a little blacksmith style knife that i do um for my kids schools doing like a fundraiser coming up in a at the beginning of december um and then regular knife stuff. I just heat treated um, a stainless, what is it? Stainless mosaic Damascus loveless replica that is a full integral. So the blade, the guard, and the full tang are all forged out of one piece of material. And um, and I just heated treat, heat treated that the other day. I'd actually been putting that off for quite a long time. And uh, because I was afraid <laughs> that I was going to fuck it up. So... Uh, how does, but how it do you went, quench something like that with with the the integral and everything being stainless in oil? Oh, in I've, oil. Okay. I've only ever heat treated stainless in oil, quenching it in oil. Wow. And so interesting, which is so adds to some of that anxiety uh, for mm -hmm. sure. But if you look at uh, like Damasteel's page, they have a regimen for heat treating in the oil, and with integral bolsters, you could plate quench just just the blade um, but most of my stuff has some sort of taper whether it's from the spine to the heel or from the spine like where the the bolster transition out to the tip um and so plate quenching is somewhat challenging and oh, yeah. also i don't have plates <laughs> i've never plate quenched in my life. <laughs> so that makes it even harder <laughs> what oil do you use to quench stainless? i was using triple a oh okay parks triple a uh, it doesn't need to be super fast. Parks 50. I don't, I, the concern about faster oil, um, and I think Laren Thomas talks about how uh, Parks 50 technically is more of a medium speed rather than a, a fast quenching oil. Um, but the AAA is supposed to be slower than that. And the, the high chromium materials like the stainless stuff doesn't need fast oil. So, um, so yeah everything went smooth so far he everything went fine through uh tempering heat treat and tempering so now what is it not next week probably the week after next is going to start the finish work of doing all the finish grinding which is like a pretty deep hollow i think loveless used to do like a four inch or a six inch diameter hollow on a lot of his smaller knives it's only three and a half inch knife um 
and I don't do very much hollow grinding. Um, so it'll be interesting trying to do that really kind of for the first time on this very unique piece that could no go pressure. sideways really fucking quick. <laughs> so uh, what kind of uh, stainless steels are in that uh, mosaic? Yeah, so this is a stainless mosaic Damascus that I forged with Will Brigham, who's the artificery on Inst Instagram. And uh, I worked with him a couple summers ago and we we made this stainless mosaic so it was my design and and then we were in his shop using all his equipment and his know-how about welding stainless and um and he so he usually uses uh, cpm 154 and aebl um and i've been talking to him about why he doesn't use like 14c28n or something or 12c or something along those lines because those are somewhat aebl like but they are part of metal particle metallurgicals manufactured mm. steels gotcha. so i'm wonder i've i've wondered why he doesn't do those i think big honestly the biggest difference between them is cost even though they're very similar in cost i think um they, i think the 14c 28n and those other similar steels are just a little bit more expensive and the cpm all by itself is already expensive right most yeah. of the billets start out with at least 500 dollars worth of material <laughs> in the it, just to make the material, <laughs> made the blade, oh uh, or gosh. make the billet, and then there's all the prep time that goes into it. There's probably like six, four to six hours of prep time and surfacing and flattening and cleaning and getting everything prepared and canning it and doing all this crazy stuff so that he can properly get it to adhere or not adhere, I guess, forge weld to each other. <laughs> and um, there's a lot of cost that goes into so by the time you start there's probably at least two thousand dollars worth of materials and time put into it um before you one start billet. forging it what's that one billet into one billet yeah, yeah wow and you wonder why damascus steel is so fucking expensive uh. and i think it's not as i mean i think there's they definitely have their challenges too um but it's you know they're working with really specialty materials to make their their ingots and their billets and for the forging process for them is also you know very delicate and so it, yeah so yeah it ends up costing a lot either way whether you're doing we, it yourself or you're buying a commercial stuff we've had and tobias the, hangler on a few times and he's gotten oh, into yeah. the business end of steel production right and there's a lot more to it than most people would assume you know yeah yeah i believe it I, yeah, I've, I just, I've only on the Damascus making side of things. So it'd be cool though, to be able to, <laughs> I was talking to somebody about this the other day, take your like Damascus or steel scraps, probably at least your Damascus scraps, not necessarily like mild steel and whatever metal scraps you get laying around, but melt them back down into ingots, forge them back out in the bars and then reincorporate that steel back into your Damascus making process. I think that would be fucking cool. That would be cool. Have you ever done one of those, uh, whatever they call it, like the the garbage can where you take your your scrap Damascus pieces and throw <laughs> the them garbage in a can? can is and... the perfect term for it. I did that one time, um, and it was while I was still working for Bob Kramer, and uh, I think he had seen somebody do it, or maybe he had done it himself before. And it was more than anything; it was like a time filler, and mm -hmm. and also I guess, I guess uh, for me to practice forge welding with powder but yeah if we took a 
ton of end cuts and cut yeah i even had to cut down other scraps and stuff to be able to fit them into like a, i think it was like a three by three or four by four can that was maybe five or six inches tall and it all came together but it also kind of looks like dog shit <laughs> for the most part i'm not honestly the biggest fan of them i like the idea that you're repurposing the materials but I've rarely seen it done really well. I think the stuff I've liked the most has probably been like, um, what is it? Uh, uh, Joshua Prince did one like last year that was really fucking cool or yeah. did like a series of forge welding, all these weird bits together. And then uh, I think Nick Angers has done some really cool ones, but otherwise, and I don't know if it's like the organization of the material, if he gets it really well packed in there. And so he's using minimal powder or what but most most stuff i see i'm like all right it just it just <laughs> looks like a bunch of scraps on a canvas yeah <laughs> it, but, does. it uh, looks like somebody dumped their garbage can across the lawn i've been trying to think of like a cool way to be able to because i haven't done it yet I, of course you know like everybody else i've got all these scraps of damascus you know sitting in coffee cans and I'm like what sure. am i going to do with this you know but i'd like to be able to figure out a way to manipulate it so that it actually looked homogenous you know because otherwise it just looks sure. like a scrap here you know, blank 1094 powder and, you know, a scrap here. Uh, mm -hmm. Micah from MD Edgeworks had a pretty cool idea. He forged one into a canister and then he split it like a feather. Mm. And I haven't seen oh. the, I haven't I seen I've the seen final product, one. but yeah, he, he, he posted something about it, but I don't think I've, he's actually posted the final knife. I don't think he's finished, uh, no. finished the whole thing yet, but shout out to yeah. Micah from MD Edgeworks. He's got cool ideas like that. For sure. Yeah, and I feel like I'm talking some mad shit about <laughs> repurposing or canister and stuff like that. It's honestly, it's, I, I think it's fine. And I think it's actually, it's, it can be really cool if you tell the story about how you're like, where this material comes from and how you're repurposing it and making it a meaningful thing. It's just ultimately like aesthetics wise, it's very rarely my bag. But I do think that is a cool way to make use of scraps uh, uh, that you have laying around the shop. I, I have buckets full of it myself, honestly. And so, yeah. but my, again, my thought is to, because I, I would love to get into making my own crucible steel, especially now that I have a power hammer. And so um, making, like melting down ingots and creating a, 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 what the fuck's it called? An ingot of steel. And then, and then hammering it out and into a bar and then either forging a blade out of that or, incorporating it uh reincorporating it with other materials to make damascus again i think it's cool well, do you or think it would cool. retain any of the any of the contrast between the types of steel or would it just no. kind of because ideally you're you're melting it you're completely melting it down right and so, so it's, it's in just, a fluid state and yeah. so everything is just redispersed uh, back out and so what you end up getting out of it, it will probably be a because for most of my Damascus, I'm using uh, a, either like 1080 or so uh, high carbon and using 15 and 20. And so I would basically kind of get a blend of those two. And they're very similar chemical composition, except for the nickel that's in the 15 and 20. Um, so it would be, and it's 0.2% nickel by weight uh, in the 15 and 20. So I'd probably end up around 10, say. If it's a, roughly a 50-50 mixture, you're cutting that in half. But essentially, right. you have like a 10, 1080, 1075 steel with a little bit of nickel in it. It's a mutt. It's, it's like, a mutt. It's like my dog's a German Shepherd Catahoula. 
You know? Oh, that's a pretty dog, I bet. Well, not literally. I was just like, as oh, okay. I was gonna say those are. <laughs> I love both of those dogs. They're they're sweet. My my actual dog's a beagle German short haired pointer. She looks like oh, a baby okay. seal. Yeah, she's a dog. <laughs> uh, we're really into corgis, and we've been my kid and I pulled up corgi mixes the other day, and there's like corgi mix with a German Shepherd and a pit bull and a Dalmatian, <laughs> and it basically they all end up. I think. Oh, I found it on Instagram. It was like if you breed a corgi with any other full full bred pure, pure breed, it looks like a corgi dressed up in a whatever do- kind of other dog costume. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. Especially the, the German Shepherd one. It just looks like a little short legged miniature German Shepherd. Like yeah, basically yep. all it is. Yeah, I love all dogs. I'm a big hound fan. I personally okay. have two hounds, but nice. do- dogs are just the shit. I dogs are pretty awesome. Yep. They're good for the heart. I agree. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> Sometimes I come home from work and like my wife's in a bad mood, my kids in a bad mood, my dogs, they're never in a bad mood. Right. They're stoked to see you. Yeah. Yeah. I got one technical question here. Sorry. Okay. Sorry to interrupt the dog Go talk ahead. here. So, you were talking <laughs> about the you know, that stainless knife that you were um quenching in oil and it reminded me of uh something that I came up with this question in my head. Uh, I've recently gotten into integrals and I did a, a batch of some mono steel ones. And when I was hand sanding them, I found that there was a bit of like an auto hormone that had appeared out of nowhere. And my best guess was that there was some retained heat in the bolster so that as I was quenching it, it basically softened that material close to the bolster because it wasn't like a clean hormone. It was just kind of around that bolster area that just kind of appeared. So I've got, you know, orders for Damascus integrals now. And the last thing I want is to have, you know, a difference in contrast when I'm etching these things, when I'm done, um, after I've, I've heat treated them with that, that bolster retaining heat. Was it just a matter of me not soaking the blade in the, in the oil or agitating the blade in the oil long enough, um, to create that effect? Do you think? How long are you, so are you agitating it in the oil? Uh, probably a good 10 to 15 seconds. Okay. Um, are you, what steel mixture are you using? Uh, those were a 1084 uh, hex stock from uh, Lawrence, uh, Maritime okay. Supply. Um, and then? Heat treated according to Lawrence's recipe out of a Paragon and quenched in Parks 50. Yeah. In Parks 50. Um, yeah, so the that is a, an issue with that thermal mass in that integral bolster or or, or guard or whatever your integral is. Uh, you have that extra material there, so it's going to hold the heat, and it's going to that heat's going to dissipate a lot slower than the thin cross section of your blade. Um, something you can do is to do a little bit of sculpting before you do your heat treat, so that the bolster is closer to its finished dimension before okay. you do your heat treat so that um you get some of that trans or you get a better transformation in that bolster area um but it is challenging and i think i honestly so when i quench i'm like trying to visualize when i'm quenching so when i quench a blade i quench for probably five or six seconds so i'm trying to get below that perlite nose but once i get below that perlite nose i have i, I I'd have to look again exactly, but I have a little bit of time. And when I what I'm looking for is just like any straightness, anything that needs to be realigned and figured out. Um, 
real quick with just like gloves or with towels and gloves and stuff to just kind of straighten out real sure. quick. But because it's still hot, it has not hit that martensite start transformation. So um, this whole time, the bolster is also still coming down in temperature. And so it's kind of allowing things to even out a little bit before going back into the oil and finishing my quenching. Because once I get that past that perlite no nose, it give, again, it gives me that time to make some adjustments. Um, and then it's also giving time for, because the blade's already cool. Um, and But the bolster is coming down probably a, a bit at that spot at that point a little bit faster than the blade already would be coming down in temperature or at least a similar thing i don't know anyways <laughs> uh but then i go back and do a quench for like 20 30 seconds and i'm agitating really? the whole time yeah okay because i've already at that point i've done what i need to do to see if things are straight uh it's given a chance for the the blade to kind of generally even out the temperature because the bolster while still black or black after that first whatever five six seconds of quenching it mm -hmm. is it's probably still up at eight nine hundred degrees oh, um yeah easily and so and so um yeah so i i do that f after the straightening and stuff I do a full another 20 seconds, 30 seconds of quenching and agitating quenching because that bolster has that thermal mass. I really am trying to get it down as quickly as possible. But I feel good doing that at that point uh, because I feel good about how straight the blade is. And that's always a concern, especially if you're quenching and not a, not only just non-integral blades, but especially in integral blades because it can present a, uh, some serious challenges and trying to straighten things out when you got that big old chunk of metal right in the middle of the blade. And uh, if I feel good about that at that point, then then I'll just finish the quench right there. And so gotcha. my quench is probably taking a total of probably a minute, maybe. Um, or maybe a couple minutes. Because like I said, after that five second mark, I pull it out, I wipe it off real quick and I'm looking at straightness, seeing if anything means just. And then, then sometimes that can take... 30 seconds a minute before i feel really good about it because sometimes i overcorrect and then i got to correct that yeah. <laughs> and you know because essentially when it's still in that austenitic phase and it hasn't transformed to martin's like it's soft as fuck right, i think you uh, that flexibility right there what's that are you i was i just was agreeing like yeah you got that flexibility where you've got that window where you can correct those mistakes are you sticking it like in a post vice or anything to straighten these out or are you doing this all by hand I just do it by hand, and usually because it's so it's because it's still in the austenitic form. Um, God, what the hell is that one master smith up in Michigan? I think he's up in Michigan. Uh, that does oh, fuck, all the heat treat stuff. Can't think of his fucking name, but he has a demo where he does a partial quench. He quenches to get below the perlite nose, and then he pulls the blade out, and he's bending it all over the place. And it's all <laughs> like it's all fucked up and twisted up, and then he straightens it all out, and then he fin finishes it, and that's it. And he showed like really? it shows that you have time to do that and still get a full uh, hardening transformation on your blade. Um, you obviously don't want to spend forever there doing that. But, you know, right. you got a, a minute, maybe a couple minutes to do that. Um, if you get, get everything dialed in in that window, then you can do finish that quenching transformation and take the oil the rest of the way down. Sometimes I'll even go into a separate oil because I'll start because especially for the 10 series stuff, I'll start in, um, in the Parks 50 um, and then 
I'll, I'll have because I have my AAA right there next to me, and it's colder, and it'll finish, you know, from that 900, 800 degrees down to Martin site start faster. Whether that not that's actually necessary, but if it's, I'll do that if I'm doing multiple blades. That way, I'm not adding right. more heat to the oil. I'll have a secondary oil where I finish the quenching in. But if I'm only doing the one blade, I'll just do it all in the 50, Parks 50. What uh, What's the volume? Like how much how much oil are you quenching in for that one blade? That is a great question. It's probably at least a gallon. I have a my quench tube on my Parks 50. I think that's actually a 4x4 tube with like a quarter inch wall and 4x4 ID. Um, quarter inch wall and it's like three... Yeah, it's like three feet tall. So whatever. Yeah, it's probably like uh actually that's probably that's probably at least a, good a couple, couple gallons. Yeah, at least a couple gallons. So I have plenty, I got lots of oil in there. Nice. And um I only warm it up if it's extremely cold in the shop, but it does have a working temperature, I believe, of fifty to like hundred and ten or hundred and twenty or something like that. So nice. if it's cooler in the shop, like it is this time of year. I'll, I'll warm it up a bit and then, but I'm not trying to really get too much past that hundred degree mark. Um, and then while that's coming back down, like I'll like, as the kiln is coming up the temperature, I'll put a piece of steel in there to help warm it up and, and to help warm up the oil. Um, and then I'll pull it out and I'll have a thermometer right in there watching the temperature. I'll pull it out, wipe off that piece of metal, whatever it was. It's usually, it's just like a, I think I have a three eighths by inch and a half inch bar of mild. Um, and so then I'll put the blade in the kiln and the, as the kiln's coming up, the temperature of the oil's coming down. And after, you know, a 15 minute soak, I'm, I'm pretty well balanced at around a hundred degrees. I found is a really good place for my blades to harden the harden my blades at. Nice. Are you usually quenching just one at a time then? Usually just one at a time, yeah. I I hardly ever work in batches anymore. That sounds fantastic. I'm usually I'm really focused on just doing one piece at a time. I would love that. Yeah. I'm I'm getting there. I'm 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 working on trying to get my my order list down to where I can just do one blade at a time. Uh, yeah, well, I think that was a problem. When I was doing custom orders, I I was struggling with working in batches because I was making mistakes. I was fucking things up all over left and right. And so I realized I have when I'm doing the batch, I'm distracted and thinking about something else when I'm trying to work on this one knife. And, mm. and yeah, like I said, I was making mistakes. And so I had to stop doing batches so that I could stay focused on one custom order at a time. And once I started doing that, I was making fewer, I was still making mistakes, but I was making fewer mistakes. Um, and and it was it just it worked better for me that way but now that i'm not doing custom orders anymore working in batches isn't as much of a concern for me because i don't have to hit a certain dimension in length or heel height or um especially in the length of the blade heel height or a specific thickness of the spine or a specific grind all this kind of stuff there there it's a little bit more fluid so i and, and when i first started out i was working in batches i would do like five or six integral knives at a time and because they weren't specified for anybody i was just had some general guidelines i was working around it was it was fine if all of a sudden that two and a quarter inch knife became a two inch knife 
too much tall. It's still, for me, that's still a pretty, it's a reasonable height for a chef's knife, two inches. Any, any narrower than that, then it kind of starts to get into slicer realm for me. Um, but yeah, so that's I'm, I'm doing one at a time. With. What's that? That's something I've been playing with is, is heel height. And really mm. the, the biggest struggle for me is I think I've, I've been making knives to fit my hands mm-hmm. and my hands are a little bit, I have mechanic hands and they're a little bit bigger than, than the average, you know, home cook. Uh, sure. and so I, I've got these knives with, you know, two and a quarter, two and a half inch heel. Well, not, not two and a half. That's a little extreme. Two and a half for a regular it. chef. It's pretty tall. Yeah. But no, like, <laughs> you know, like a, a, a <laughs> no. two, uh, you know, a two and a quarter inch heel. But the only reason that it needs to be that tall is because I, the thickness where the, the bolster transition is, I've just been making so thick because that's how I like them. And then mm. I, you know, I'll be going to, uh, I did a few shows this, this, uh, summer. And people are picking up these knives and they're like, oh, they're beautiful. And it's like, it's just a little bit too big for my hands. And I'm like, I need to rethink this. Uh, yeah. But, uh, but I mean, that's one of the great things about, you know, getting your knives in people's hands and getting that feedback, you know, it's. Yeah, for sure. It, it's easy to get tunnel vision where you're just thinking about, you know, how you want to make something or how you would make something for yourself. But getting that feedback is difficult to do sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I have a similar struggle. I'm, I'm only five eight. Um, but my hands are the same size as my brother-in-law who's six foot four. I have big hands. Mm. And so, and which I, I can't, I, that's been a while since I measured. I think it's at least 10 inches across from thumb to pinky. If I go like this, um, Damn. <laughs> yeah, it's close. It's big. Uh, but you know, I, I can't always build, build based off my my own hand size right because they especially a chef's knife if especially and especially if it's not designated for anybody specifically you got to kind of hit a, a happy medium of some sorts and so i've essentially tried to make a handle that's small enough that it's still comfortable in my big old mitt <laughs> and if that's the case, then it's probably good for somebody with smaller hands. And, you know, so that's where friends with smaller hands, especially women, um, my wife uh, or my mom or whoever, like I, I get my knives in other people's hands and say, how does this feel? I mean, often it's very positive feedback. And so that's kind of how I've found um, my happy medium. I should, I'm, I'm, I mapped out one of my S grinds a few years back and I should, I've never thought about doing that on my handles, but just like mark, mark out and map out some of the dimensions, um, just to give people an idea of what the size of my handles are actually looking like, because some knives, when you look at the profile, like I love yellow Hosenberg's work, his chef's knives are fucking sick. Um, and you look at them from the profile, it looks pretty reasonable. But then you start looking at it from the spine or kind of an off angle, like a turned off at a 45 degrees. And it's like, whoa, there's a lot of material there. That's a big handle. And um, I think it's uh, the size of his handles is a symptom of wanting to retain a lot of the complicated facets and fullers and hollows and stuff that he's sculpting into his handle work. Um, Which is incredible. It is fucking, it's amazing. It's absolutely incredible his work's really great um but i if i was trying to do something like that i'd I'd have to try to pare back the the girth of the handle for sure it's just absolutely too much you you limit your appeal honestly 
you know, you can, you can make the most beautiful knives in the world, but somebody with smaller hands wants to pay for it or buy it. Uh, they could buy it and, but how often they'll use it, it is dependent on how, uh, how comfortable that handle is. A lot of people, for a lot of people, I feel like, and I've talked about this before in other places, but I feel like the handle is an afterthought often when the reality is like the relationship with that tool, whether it's a, a kitchen knife or a EDC or a, a bush knife or a camp knife or whatever, the relationship with that tool is in the handle. Right. Yeah. And if it's not comfortable, fucking person's not going to use it. They're just not going to use it. They're not going to reach for it. And right. so often when I'm looking at other people's work, that's one of the first, actually, even it's not even the blade profile very often that I'm looking at first, I'm looking at the handle. And if that handle doesn't look comfortable, sorry, like it doesn't get necessarily my, my seal of approval, because if it's in a lineup, it's probably going to be one of the last things I reach for. Yeah, I think uh, m mine is just a symptom of my uh, horrible inability to listen to my wife, even though she's normally right. Because I, I we we went to Blade Show this year, okay. and I'm holding all these knives, and I'm like, man, the all of these knives have smaller handles than mine. You know, I'm mm. checking out other people's work, and I'm like, this is fantastic work. You know, but man, these handles are so much smaller than I'm used to. Like this, it's kind of weird. They're still very comfortable. And so I came back with that as kind of like, that was like my biggest takeaway from Blade this year was, you know, my handles are freaking massive, you know, compared to a lot of these guys work. And my wife's like, I told you, I told you. <laughs> and I'm like, mm, yep. Yeah, you did. So, uh, she's, she's actually been helping me and I've been doing my best to listen to my wife. And so I've been, you yeah. know, I've doing, doing mock-ups and stuff like that and, and having my wife, you know, hold them and, you know, see how it feels in her hands, you know, cause they're half the size, you know, yeah. half the size of mine. Yeah. And, uh, and so I've been trying to, trying to learn, trying to take criticism from my wife, even though I struggle yeah. with my handles. It's probably one of the things that I struggle the most with. I'm never satisfied with them. I don't think I've made one I like yet. And okay. if they're, if they're comfortable, I think they look like shit and it could be in my head. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Dude, it, sure. So yeah, it's, I've tried all different types and it, I just haven't found one yet that I is mine, you know, my style. Everybody's a little different. Um, it's just something I've struggled with. Um, well, it's like that, uh, you know, that, that second integral that I made, it was the, the first integral chef, the knife that I made that mono steel one. And I sent you guys, mm -hmm. I sent you guys a picture of that. And I'm like, I freaking hate it. And you're like, why? And I'm like, I just, there's something about the shape. It doesn't look like one of my knives. I don't like it, but oddly enough, it's the most comfortable knife I've ever made. And part of that's the balance, you know, with the integral, you know, it, sure. it puts all that weight back in your hand. But part of it was just the fact that this, it was smaller because I forged the bolster too small before I started shaping oh, it. <laughs> and right. Yeah, I was learning. And, uh, and so, yeah, it just ended up looking terrible in my mind, but it's the most comfortable knife I've ever made. So anyways, yeah, I think we've, go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, finding that balance is the trick for sure. Cause it's it, it every, is a lot of back and forth and you just got a balance too, you know? Yeah. And some, some, you get like, here you go make yourself next make a series of like four knives or even you can do it over even just three knives and just make them like little utility knives or something like that and do different size handles and just keep pushing it yeah and 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 then hand pass them around or get get the feedback from a few different people i but, found the ones i like the most were like just the plain jane rounded 
you knock the corners off and just round the whole thing off, but they look the laziest because it's the <laughs> mm. easiest way to do it. You know, you just hit the slack belt sure, and just take it off. But in the hand, I've always found I like the feel of those the most, but I feel like a lazy bastard when I put them out because I'm like, it, it was not, there wasn't any, you know, there wasn't any real deep skill involved in, in sculpting that it's just. Right. But I think there's, there's an amount of skill that goes into identifying and knowing when to stop. And I know I have a problem with sculpting my handles. I go way overboard. I'm doing far beyond what I need to actually be doing to making it, to make it a comfortable and functional tool for sure. I've been told this by other makers as well as customers. They're like, you don't have to go as crazy as you're doing to get all these complicated contours and facets and stuff. And I'm like, yes, I do. It's like <laughs> for a long time, honestly, for a long time, I was like, I'm, I'm good at making them. I'm pretty good at making the Damascus. I'm great. At, I'm pretty good at making the knives in general, but the thing I might be one of the best at is handle sculpting. I can, I could make, I could replicate anybody's handle. I have, so much control and i can do it most almost all of it like 90 like on my work i do like 99.5 percent on the machine and and uh in most any other kind of crazy handles I do. i've done a few non culinary knife style handles for a couple different camp knives and some hunters and again it's all machine work but it's it comes down to uh the confidence in using the belts the slacks and the different contour or, and different backings whether it's a hard backing or a rotary platen and stuff like that to get these different shapes and these different lines and also just being willing to say fuck it and have have an experimental piece and and be willing for it to become trash <laughs> but you don't it's hard to find those boundaries yeah. without testing them you don't know where they're at it's, it's the same thing with thin. Like, what does thin mean? You don't know until you've gone too far, until you've ground that blade, even at a flat grind, to a foil edge. And then you're like, oh, that's too far. And then you pull it back to wherever, you know, it's more stable at around probably like 15, 10, 15 thousands. And you can see the difference of how that knife cuts and performs versus that <laughs> the foil edge is basically worthless. You put it against any surface and it'll roll almost instantly. Um, but yeah, it's, I think, I think what's helped me to get better over the years is being willing to make mistakes. And I'm not actually very often super willing to make mistakes, but I do make mistakes and I try to keep that in mind and I make them all the time. And so instead of fighting against never making mistakes and, and struggling with perfectionism, honestly, I struggle with perfectionism in a big way is being willing to, whenever I do make a mistake, Try to let the frustration and anger pass as quickly as possible so I can move on to learning from it and turn and transforming that mistake into a, a lesson, a learning lesson. And it, it loses its weight as a, of, of being a mistake when you then transform it into and incorporate it into you and your way of making knives as a lesson that you can move forward with rather than a stumbling block. Yeah, it's a it, very difficult thing to do. Yeah, but it's super hard. It's but, like the uh, Bob Ross mentality, you know. Oops, yeah, happy little mistake. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Well, I that's mean, I how, think it, it. Go ahead. That's how I learned to do fullers. 
without mm. a fullering attachment. I was putting in hollows for a diamond grind, S grind, whatever anyone calls it. And I accidentally full ground over the hollow. Mm. And I was like, oh, if I just push that even more, I've got a nice fuller in there. And until I ha- got a fullering attachment, that's how I was able to do them. I don't even know what a fullering attachment looks like. Uh, you know the small wheel attachment? Yeah. it's It's got l- smaller wheels that protrude out. So then you can put your work rest up to it. Oh, okay. Hollow grind. I got you. I got you. The yeah. fullers. All right, guys. We're 40 minutes in. Um, got deep into that for a second. Ryan, <laughs> let's let's, uh, let's hear from one of our sponsors, and then uh, we'll play a, a silly little game if you guys want. Let's do it. Hustle and Grind is sponsored by Maritime Knife Supply. Whether you're looking for steel, abrasives, handle material, forges, epoxy, or anything for making in general, Maritime Knife Supply has you covered. And in the U.S. or Canada, they ship faster than the great Cobra Chicken Gooses that their country is known for. Go to Maritime Knife Supply, and when you buy a 10-pack of belts, get 10% off. And tell them we sent you, eh? Thanks, Luke. That's good. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. <laughs> <coughs> Excuse me. That's All Luke right, you guys want to play Crafty uh, Man Forge? Crafty okay. Man Forge. Shout out to yeah. that guy. Uh, you guys want to play a little bit of uh, Where in the World is Florida Man? Let's do it. All yeah, right. That, I don't know what that means exactly, but I'm into it. Let's go. I'll, I'll okay. play you in, Noah. <laughs> oh, geez. I forgot we had a stinger for this. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, get ready to play Where in the World is Florida man. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we are here to play Where in the World is Florida Man? I have three stories in front of me. All of these are real, true, actually happened stories. The question is, do they happen in Florida or do they happen somewhere else in the wide world? We begin Navy vessel sinks after ramming cruise ship that it had ordered to change direction. I don't have. Okay. So I went, normally I have like the whole like little blurb. I was really like lazy this morning and the stories were kind of crap. So we're just doing headlines today. Okay. So Navy vessel sinks after it rammed a cruise ship that had ordered to change direction. And the cruise ship said, screw you. And so they rammed him. And then instead of the, Cruise ship sinking, the Navy vessel did. So. Oh, Jesus. Well, did that happen in Pensacola? I'm going to say Florida. Pensacola. That sounds like Florida. <laughs> and those cruise ships are massive. Well, they're massive. They're and if they've been designed to withstand ice breaking, you know, large waves out in the open sea, that sort of stuff, like they're not soft targets. No, I'll agree with Mareko. You guys are going to go Florida on this one? Yep. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, shit. Oh, wow. Ah, Yeah, I (laughs) caught you guys with that one. Uh, That was Venezuela. That was a Venezuelan Navy ship that (laughs) rammed rammed a cruise ship full of passengers because uh, they didn't like where they were at or something. Anyways. um, But yeah, I figured figured the cruise ship would have you guys uh, on that one. So I apologize. That was devious of me. No, it's good. Uh... Next up, we have driving school employee crashes into learn to drive building. 
<laughs> uh, I mean, that's the hard part of this game. They all sound like they can happen in Florida very easily. <laughs> oh, shit. Keep in mind, this was the instructor at the driving school that ran it into the building mm. that was a driving school. Like, mm. it's, it's mm. some impressive stuff. Maybe he was just a little too high to teach that day. I'm going to say Florida. <laughs> I'm going to go not Florida just so one of us gets it right. <laughs> <laughs> You're such a pussy. Uh, <laughs> all right. Final answer, gentlemen. Yeah. Locked in. Colorado. Uh, <laughs> but I was you, right you about being it. high. You're, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> he had a couple... He, <clears throat> Made a couple of turkey shadow puppets before that uh, that driving class that day. <laughs> turkey <He's>... shadow puppets. <laughs> Covering on the mushies. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so uh, that one was sent in by David Burke of OLC Knives. Thank you very much, sir. All right. Lastly, here we go. <clears throat> you guys can bring it back. Man accused of stealing NFL jersey shows up to court wearing jersey matching the description of the stolen item. <sighs> That sounds like Florida. I'm going to say Florida. I'm just, I'm the whole time. That's my strategy. It's Florida <laughs> there the you whole go. way. You're going to get one right eventually, right? Hopefully. Hopefully. Well, you did. Good job. Yes. That was a Miami Dolphins jersey that he showed up to court. Uh, wow. Wearing, wearing, wearing the jersey that he was accused of stealing. So well done, that gentleman. Uh, that was sent in by Brian Hunt from Hidden Rose Forge. Uh, thank you, gentlemen, for your contributions to the show. Congratulations, Ryan. Two to one. Did, did, did Ryan win that one? Yeah, I he did. got Colorado. Oh. He he said outside of oh Florida. For the col- I never win. That's ever, amazing. Ever. That's like the third or fourth time in the entirety of this show that he's gotten a win. That's amazing. I'm proud of you. I'm glad Thank I could help. I appreciate <laughs> you. All right. Um, um, okay. So I have one question. Or not, not a question, but uh, I have one st- thing i'd like to talk about and then uh we do have some uh this or that questions lined up as well um so i've mentioned on this show before something that i heard you say on your show and i've gotten a lot of shit for it because people think that i don't know what i'm talking about but i tell them that the only reason that i'm saying this is because Morocco said it so when you are stacking your initial billets you do not clean up like the factory mill scale off of those chunks of steel before you forge weld them correct okay everybody Please scoot in, turn the volume up, get closer to stereo, whatever you need to do. Okay, here we go. I never clean anything. I even leave stickers on. If they're rusty, I leave the rust on. I don't take anything off, ever. That's it. That's it. Boom. Ever. He's right. So, Noah's right. So You're when, right, Noah. When, when you're flipping me shit for my my reel that I'm posting where Lawrence cuts up all of my steel into perfect little chunks and all I do is stack them up and weld them together and throw them right in the uh, right in the forge and telling me that I'm wasting I'm wasting time by getting it cut to uh, cut to size because that just makes it more grinding for me. No, no, it doesn't. It's no. that easy. That's the, in fact, <laughs> your your time is better spent not shearing or cutting down your bars just fucking have somebody else do that shit for you and stack Absolutely. them up weld them up throw them in the forge i can't tell you how much time i've saved just because lawrence offers that if you just if you order it by the foot you can't order it 
you know, because he sell, he has two different mm. prices. You know, if you buy it in like a full four foot bar, or if you order it by the foot, if you order it by the foot, you pay like slightly more, but he'll cut it up into chunks for you, and it saves right. me so much time. Not That's to mention great. blades, because you know, if I'm if I'm cut, you know, I'll cut up all the bars on my uh, porta band that I have, you know, mounted in a swag stand. I mean, I go through those blades. You cut through two forty, you know, forty eight inch bars. That's a lot of blade going to waste. Whereas you can just have Lawrence do it, and it saves you so much time. Do you? I, so I have a porta band too. I don't have a horizontal bandsaw. Someday maybe, but yeah. I've always just had a porta band. I don't even have the fucking swag table. I, I mocked up <laughs> this little table that clamps into a vice that's on one of my workbenches, and that's what I use. Um, nice. That's some broke bitch shit right there. Um, I'm. Uh, do you do you condition the the blade? Before you start cutting the steel, high carbon steel, have you heard of that? I don't. What okay. I, I've heard was it? Uh, it's like breaking in the blade com, a little com, bit. Combat sells like a conditioning, like wax or something that you're supposed to put on bandsaw blades, but I've never tried it. Is that what you're talking about? No, I'm talking about okay. just cutting with some mild steel. Really? Um, yeah. So just to to cut, it doesn't even have to be a lot. You just like as long as you get in probably at least a couple rotations through the whole length of the blade or belt the sorry not the belt but the bandsaw blade um yeah maybe just a half an inch three quarters of an inch inch even of whatever cutting um that helps to set your teeth up for for whatever reason for being able to continue to cut longer my i mean to be fair i'm not cutting on my bandsaw super often but I cut a, a lot of gnarly shit on it and I'm changing my belts out or keep calling them belts blades <laughs> out like once every six months, unless I'm doing like a ton of work, I'm changing it. Like if when, I think the most frequent I was changing out blades was like once every couple months. Wow. And yeah, what, that, uh, was, what, what brand that was a little tip that somebody turned me on to. Uh, I was using the Lennox for a long time. And then I was using some kind I got from the welding supply store. It was like Master Cut or something like that. I don't know. I can't remember. Usually I just get the ones from Lowe's because Lowe's is about five minutes from my shop. And it's very easy to get. And they're, I, I use the 1418 um, mm-hmm. bandsaw blades. And I think it's like now the prices have gone up for sure. Um, but they're like 25 bucks, I think, for three blades. But if that's going to last me a year, even fucking $25 for a year is great. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. I wonder if it has so, something to do with knocking the burrs off. Maybe. Yeah. Something about because. Yeah. If there's any what? listeners out there who have the scientific knowledge behind this, we need to know. Only the ones with the scientific knowledge, not the fucking armchair bullshit. Yeah. None of that. <laughs> the naysayers that are saying that you have to clean up your billets before forging them. The flea bags, as they would say on your show. <laughs> flea so bag are knife you, makers. <laughs> are, are you using that, uh, like when you're, you do a lot of mosaic Damascus, are you using that, uh, that porta band to cut up chunks and stuff for that? 100%. Yeah. Nice. Wow. Yeah. So do you do like a lot of, um, like for instance, I was watching one of Dennis's videos the other day and he was, he has, you know, a, Actually, I didn't, he didn't show in the video how he cut it, but you, you'll cut it at like a 45 degree angle, you know, before re, restacking it because he was tiling it all 
you know, end to end. Oh, sure. And he cut it at a 45 degree angle to make it easier to forge weld the whole uh, billet together before drawing it out. Are you, how are you getting any kind of like angles or anything like that? Cause I just cannot get an accurate cut. Like I'm always like making wavy cuts and stuff on that stupid Porta band. You know, what are you yeah. using to kind of keep it lined up? So that technique he's using is a blacksmithing technique called a uh, lap weld or scarf weld. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and what blacksmiths traditionally would do is they would forge a taper and then they would get whatever the other parent or other materials they want to weld to it. Also forge another taper and then weld the forge welds those together. Um, but they also used welds that were either called butt welds or jump welds, but that's two flat surfaces just face to face. And I do a technique. So, so I, I used to do, I, I refer to what Ty, uh, Dennis is doing as, as, um, angle tiles so he's cutting tiles he has a parent bar that has some sort of mosaic pattern at the end that you can only see on the end end piece of the cross section of the blade or the billet and you you then cut it on angles and then flip those up those are sometimes also referred to as um the fairy flip uh even though tom fairy is not the first person to have done that um i think steve filichetti in our modern times, who is an Australian maker, was the one that was first um, credited with doing that. And in fact, Tom's approach, which became the fairy flip, was the only way that Tom could have, or anybody honestly in the States, could figure out what the fuck Steve Filchetti was doing to get that mosaic pattern onto the face of the blade from the end of the bar. That didn't incorporate twisting, uh, laddering, accordion cutting, you know, they couldn't figure it out. And Tom came up with this idea of cutting off tiles at an mm-hmm. angle. Um, first, I would say, I mean, I guess it depends on the amount of reduction in height. Like if you're cutting off three quarter inch tall tiles, then you probably don't need a 45 degree angle. Uh, you could probably get away with 30 degrees. Um, but that's neither here nor there. I guess what I, um, I, I used to do the angle tile approach and I really struggled with it. And I think part of that was the limitations of my tooling. I was using a MIG welder and, and I think I also just lacked confidence, honestly, in it more than anything. And I was really struggling with it. And <clears throat> there's, there's a man, what the fuck's his name? There was a maker in the UK named Will Catchaside. Uh, he's still making knives, knives. And he's a culinary knife maker predominantly. I think he does others, but for the most part, he does culinary knives. And what he was doing is what I refer to as a monster loaf. So loafing is an old technique that people do uh, to make mosaic patterns, especially for folders. And so they take a bar and they cut it up and they multiply it out and weld them back together and they reduce it down. But they, they, ha- they felt like they had to, for the welds to take properly, they had to go through massive reduction in cro- from the original cross section. Say the original cross section was two inches by four inches. They would have to go through reducing it down to one inch by two inches before then being able to um, to feel confident about cutting off a chunk and maybe doing a little bit of forging or just making a blade from there. Um, and that would be a really small folder. Now that I think about it, the, most of those folder billets were probably for four inch knives. So they're about one inch by five inch or uh, like 
one inch by four and a half, half inch. Anyways, that's when you see a lot of like the, the foil stuff and a lot of powder stuff. Part of it was their th- feeling like they had to go through that amount of reduction, but it also had to do with powdered steel has a tendency, especially when you're mixing the, what is it? 46, uh, K N or whatever it is, the nickel powder steel mm-hmm. with 1080 or 1095 or whatever powder um it has uh to refine those lines those boundaries you have to go through a lot of reduction um to get those lines to have um what don't look like that so it looks like they have clean boundaries rather than like if you took a piece of paper and tore the tore a piece of paper and it has kind of like that roughly kind of torn edge if you keep it too large uh, with powdered steels and you don't go through that massive reduction, it's difficult to get uh, a cleaner boundaries and, and weld lines. And you will get some of that kind of torn paper kind of look along the boundaries. Um, so anyways, using that as a model, I was like, well, when I, <clears throat> excuse me, when I say I'm just multiplying layers up for, for a random pattern, once I've gotten to, um, say my initial stack is four inches tall, four and a half inches tall. And I reduce it down by at least 50% down to two inches tall. At that point, I feel confident about forging on the, on the edge or forging it on the bias and the material not coming apart. And so my thought was, what if you could just slab off from there and then draw that out and effectively work against those welds that you just set and forge a blade out. And Will Catchaside was doing that. And if you think about it, and at first I was like, that doesn't seem right though. Um, but if you think about it, when you when somebody's making a feather billet, all the welds are straight welds. They're not angles. So you take a W's, or you take a stack of C's or stack of W's, you stack them up, you compress it down by a certain amount, and then you hot cut it in half, and then you weld them back together. But all the welds going passing from side to side of that billet are straight welds. There's no lap welds anywhere. And my concern was that because I wasn't doing the lap welding, that that wasn't going to have this structural integrity uh, that I wanted, I want for my culinary knives but my knives aren't hard to use and people are using feather billets for making camp knives and all kinds of other technically hard to use knives, hunters and bushcraft knives as well. And I was like, if they're confident in those welds for those, those knives, I should be plenty confident in those welds for my chef's knives. And so I started doing it. And so I don't, uh, let's see, I feel like I've, I've, kind of lost where is that so you started asking about the angle tiles so yeah. basically i would start to make those monster low so i instead of cutting out tiles i would just stack a billet up the same way i would normally do for a, like like i said like a uh multiplying the layers up for a random pattern but instead at a certain point you have a mosaic pattern but instead of cutting tiles off again i'm cutting i'm just taking that full length of the billet whatever it is and i'm chopping it up and restacking it four or five times um, or four or five pieces to, for what would be as normal restack that I would then forge down and draw out. But at a certain point, which is usually around that two inch by two inch mark, I would feel confident about everything being stuck together properly. And I would slab off a chunk and then I would now work against those welds 
So you set those welds vertically. And then if you turn that on that side, that you start from four inches, you reduce it down to two, you turn it on the side, and then you draw it back out. You're working against those welds now to forge out what would become a blade. And that's how I started using a butt welding technique. So now what I do, instead of restacking the whole billet, I'll just cut off what I need for one individual knife. And I'll do what I call a micro billet. And so it's just enough tiles, enough material for forging out one chef's knife and or whatever size knife I'm doing. And that's what I use for my knives these days now. I'm, I'm doing micro bellows, but I'm not using angles. They're all straight welds. Again, like you would do a normal restack. And the reason I feel confident in those, one, because I, like I was talking about with feather billets, but two, just my forge, forge welding process. I give it time to do what it needs to, the steel to do what it needs to do to... <clears throat> first set the initial weld just so that the material is close enough at an atomic level that it starts to trade atoms and and start to establish that uh, diffusion welded bond between the materials and every round at least the first i think two or three rounds i'm just establishing and trying to encourage the surfaces and their contact with each other and the opportunity that they have to um to trade those weld bonds and then and then i start to and as you crush it down it's the billet starts to kind of pooch out from the sides and it, it gets a little bit irregular so you got to kind of start tidying things up and and then i reform it into what would be my typical starting billet size which is usually about inch and a half tall by nowadays it's five eighths but it used to be three quarters of an inch but five eighths thick and then however long it is usually it's maybe like three three and a half inches long and that would be a starting block for me to make a an integral knife and it's small that's why i call it a micro billet it's small so but it is a billet it's a forge welded billet and then and then how thin are you forging this then before you're calling i I mean you're forging it pretty much almost to the the finished thickness yeah i i know especially because of jason knight likes uh to say forge to finish um but that gets thrown around a lot. But the reality is it's difficult to forge to finish because you still have to heat treat the knife. So I forge it to essentially what would be the heat treat dimension. Um, and so along the edge, at least if I'm working with a power hammer and it's a mosaic pattern, I can I can forge down to a 16th of an inch along the edge and a full taper from the integral bolster down to the tip and from the spine down to the heel. And, and basically... All that work that you would do typically of, uh, say, even just stock removing to primary grind the blade before heat treating, um, if you're oil quenching, I guess, instead of plate quenching. Uh, I'm just doing that with the hammer. Wow. That's uh, that, that's obviously impressive, but uh, it's uh, one thing that my concern, because, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not not nearly i mean, I have, i've only been forging for like three years yeah um so my concern when i'm forging something that's damascus is forging it too close to the finished dimensions to where i have to worry about decarb in the final etch um how do you combat that um so if decarb typically will only go about 20 oh geez 20 is even a lot decarbs maybe the top 10 or 15 thousandths of an inch oh really that's way thinner yeah. than I thought. And it's it's only it's especially the 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 
the really like light cloudy stuff is always going to be close to the outside surface. So it's somewhat homogenous basically through the most, most of the cross section. And then at the outer edges, it's leaching out. But throughout the rest of the blade, it's still trying to balance out and homogenize that carbon content. So for the majority of the cross section of the blade, it's still going to be basically pretty well balanced. It's only where it's closest to the oxygen is where it's highly depleted. Mm-hmm. And, and it's only going to be, yeah, like I said, that especially if it's super smooth. Um, and honestly, I don't think it matter, matters what thickness. If you, I'd be curious, actually, it'd be cool to see somebody do a, uh, like a bunch of samples and cut them off and etch them and stuff just to see what that looks like. Not even forged, just like straight bars of like, say three eighths versus a quarter inch versus an eighth versus 16th. And just, just to see, and I, I, my guess and my bet would be that the decarb would essentially stay the same. The thickness of the decarb layer would always stay the same and then the rest would be a homogeneous mixture of carbon content and when you Very see cool. on finished pieces like those decarburized lines um especially between tiles and stuff it doesn't mean that it's a bad weld honestly not not that that is not enough to say that that is a bad weld all it means is that whoever made that steel they they removed and, and which is what you should do. Uh, you, they removed the forge scale, and they but they only removed as much as they needed to to get flat sur- surfaces, clean flat surfaces to come back together. Um, and then they went through whatever process. Typically, it's like an angle tile approach. They they weld. Now they're doubling up decarb surfaces, and then and then they weld the billet. One of the problems is people are afraid that they're cooking the carbon out of their steel. And so they're trying to spend as little time in, in the forge as possible. And you don't want to spend all fucking year in there. But you do want to spend enough time so that the carbon has an opportunity to move around and migrate throughout the material to re-homogenize that carbon content to fill in essentially those depleted surfaces and and re-homogenize and allow that carbon to move around throughout the material to even out that carbon content so that you lose those lines. And so really? what you're seeing so is somebody doing just like the bare minimum of forging and welding to get the material to stick so they can move forward with grinding a blade. And again, it doesn't mean those are bad welds. It's just for me, it's an aesthetic flaw, essentially. Sure, it doesn't yeah. look right in the finished piece. Um and it <laughs> Even though there was the process was intentional, doesn't mean that they intentionally wanted a boundary line right there in the middle of their blade or multiples, honestly, down the length of yeah. the blade. And I doubt most people would uh, if they didn't have to deal with that. They would they would ideally want it to not be there. This is interesting because this is touching really closely on a conversation that I was having with a listener just the other day. So uh, if you're listening today, pay attention to what what Mareko is saying right here because that. What, what you were just saying about the, you know, the, letting it soak in the forge long enough to where that, that carbon migrates through and will basically re, I don't know what the word is, I, I suck, but uh, it, it, the carbon will move back into an area that's been depleted of that carbon in, you know, in solution when it's, when it's heated up. I never would have thought of that being a thing. Um, that's just so interesting. Yeah. And for me, typically when I'm forging my integral knives, you know, I could race through it and get it done in like 
half an hour or 40 minutes, but it usually is taken. I'm, I'm spending the time because I know it benefits the material, especially the finished aesthetic of the material. If I take a little bit more time and I forge a knife in an hour and a half, a couple hours, and then I still, and that's before I even start putting it through normalizing cycles and doing all the heat treat prep and final hardening and everything. And those will help with homogenizing, but they can't do, that's not enough all on their own, obviously. I mean, we're still seeing finished pieces out there with decarburized forge weld boundaries that have gone through the heat treat process and you can still see those boundaries, right? So it's not enough alone. You have to give it a little bit more time. And if you're worried about, um, leaching carbon set your welds draw your billet down to sorry just punch the mic again set draw your billet down to where you want it to be as quickly as you can sure and then put it in some foil and then maybe give it put it through a, an anneal cycle that time which is probably at least a two three hour process at least um should give the carbon the time it needs at above critical temperatures, especially once you once you start getting to uh, like what is it like thirteen fifty, thirteen seventy five, you hit that critical temperature, and the carbon wants to start moving a lot more freer between the uh, the iron atoms and the other alloying elements to even itself out. It slips around through there, and that's what it that's what we want. But if you're wrapping it up in the foil then you have less of a concern of the carbon being lost and you can even out that carbon content of that bar before then moving forward with either gently forging to profile or even stock removing, whatever you want to do to finish the knife so that in your finished product, you don't have those decarb lines. It's just, a, it's a, like, that's an overnight process you can do. It doesn't have to be part of your work day. Just time it out. So you're doing it overnight. So you come in the next day, you're ready to rock and roll. And I think often what's happening is people are trying to get through everything as quickly as possible. And if we just slow down, you know, some places it makes sense to t make shortcuts, but other places it makes sense to take some time. And that's one of those places where I think for the finished product to have a really nice, clean, intentional uh, aesthetic that's that somewhere you want to allow for that time rather than rush through it. Absolutely. Yeah. I, uh, I'm a flat rate technician, auto tech for my, my day job. And the, the most important part of my job is figuring out where I can cut corners and where I absolutely cannot. So sure. <laughs> that, that speaks to me. What does safety have something to do with it or something? <laughs> a, a little bit, you know, um, people, people driving around two ton, hunks of metal on the road where my family's driving around on. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm definitely making sure that those things are safe, but, good. uh, I'll have to ask you an auto question at the end after we're, we're done recording. Well, we're going to, we got an after show for our patron members. So okay. that'll be a, a little spicy nugget for them in there. If you want to learn about, uh, some, some, whatever we're going to talk about auto. What do you say? Uh, we do. Yeah. I see another sponsor. Yeah. We got one more. Hit and then we never played Sorry, this or that. I was so distracted. Okay, yeah. Well, okay. So one more, one more ad. We'll play a quick game of this or that, and then we got to head over to the after show. Hustle and Grind podcast is sponsored by Phoenix Abrasives, your one-stop abrasive shop. When you go to phoenixabrasives.com, click the shop icon in the upper right-hand corner to find all the abrasives you'll ever need. Check out the Incinerator 36-grit ceramic belts, along with the Trizact gator belts that the hosts of Hustle & Grind use every day. 
When you check out, use code HUSTLE10 for 10% off your entire order. Thanks, Luke. Thanks, Luke. And uh, Thanks, this Luke. is my favorite stinger, so we can't oh, not play this one. Okay. A little bit of this and a whole lot of that. Would you rather fly in a submarine or swim in an airplane? Would you rather be a reindeer? Would you rather surf a wave of Kool-Aid or snowboard a mountain of Dippin' Dots? Would you rather fly or be able to breathe in the water? Would you prefer the ability to stick to walls or would you rather shoot spaghetti from your fingers? All right, guys, we're going to play a little bit of this or that. We kind of re- I was I was really, you know, into the conversation there, so I got distracted. But I know there are some listeners who would be very upset with me because um, I haven't <laughs> been doing this or that very much anymore. And for whatever reason, you guys love it. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to play some this or that before we get out of here. Um, so, Mareko, I've just got some questions. Some of them are stupid and uh, just going to try and fast, fast paced run through these real quick. Rapid fire. Let's uh, do it. Let's do it. Uh, raw iron or stainless sand mine? Who stainless with a nickel shim? Dang it, I can't. I won't ask qualifying <laughs> questions, but I'm not going to. We're going to keep going. Uh, twist pattern or basket weave? Twist. Raindrop or ladder pattern? Raindrop. Man, chat GPT really let me down on this here today. These are kind of lame. Uh, Japanese Tonto or Bowie knife? That one makes a whole lot of sense because you make chef knives. <laughs> I think Bowie knife. All right, a lot more cool. flexibility, I feel like, than Bowie knife. In design. So you can do what you want with it. I see that. Um, so you make integrals, but if you weren't going to make an integral, would it be a full tang or a hidden tang? Hmm. Probably a hidden tang. Damascus steel chopsticks or Damascus steel spork? Uh, spork for fucking sure. Awesome. I, 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 uh, never mind. <clears throat> uh, would you rather try blade forging in space or underwater? Uh, space. I, I want to have the whole uh, looking back at Earth experience during la- sure. la- launch. Would you rather forge a Damascus steel bow tie or Damascus steel cufflinks? Cufflinks. Although bow tie is kind of a cool idea. You you imagine grabbing it could be a push dagger. Oh, oh yeah, like a double. It could be a double push dagger. Oh, Fuck. Gosh. I want to make that. That would be so freaking cool. <laughs> All right. Nobody make this. This is this is Mareko's idea. Yeah, we gotta um, edit that out. All right. <laughs> just put beep bleeps over the top of that. People are just okay. be like, what the fuck was he saying? <laughs> uh would you rather have a knife that shoots lasers or a knife that makes espresso for you? Ooh, lasers. A blade that glows in the dark or a blade that changes colors? <sighs> changes colors. Uh, Man, some of these are terrible. Oh, here we go. Uh, Damascus steel toothbrush or a Damascus lawnmower? Ooh. Lawnmower blade or lawnmower? The lawnmower itself. Ooh. Uh, yeah, lawnmower. For sure. Same. That'd be the coolest dad on the block. Are you kidding <laughs> me? That'd be so freaking sweet. Uh, <laughs> would you have, rather have uh, a nice a knife that would slice pineapples by itself or open magic portals? Magic portals. 
damn straight. Okay. Rick and Morty stuff. There we go. There was there was this or that. <laughs> Guys, I hope I hope you're happy. Um I have to go back. So the the wrought iron or stainless sand my you said stainless with a nickel shim. Are you not a fan of carbon migration lines? Uh it depends. <laughs> I'm actually super good with them. Um but it for the way I forge, I think it would be deleterious to the finished product um it could be a problem when i'm forging really close to finished dimension but if i'm doing a little bit of uh kind of more forging to profile so when i say forging to profile like i'm i'm more i'm i'm thinning out the material as i'm drawing it down and forging it but i'm mostly just kind of tuning up the profile rather than like forging bevels and all that other shit because honestly that sometimes you don't want to forge bevels and it helps with preserving the pattern or at least reducing distortion that could be um, introduced to the pattern, mosaic pattern, that you maybe not don't want to do. And I've had actually issues with that over the last couple of years, forging close to finish or to heat treat dimension, and it fucking with my Damascus pattern, and um, getting really upset about that because it's stirring it up and mixing it up, and it basically it's like it starts out from the heel of the knife and the bolster transition like this really cool mosaic pattern, and then out towards the tip like the last third or whatever 20 percent was all fucked up and twisted up and pulled up because it it's just got all distorted so sometimes you want to forge profile sometimes you don't and you from sometimes you want to forge the heat treating dimension um but if i was if i was doing oh well gosh i think part of it is the potential or the concern of galvanic corrosion too from stainless straight on carbon Please describe that for our listeners. And galvanic corrosion is what we rely on when we put a blade in our Damascus steel blade in ferric chloride or other, um, or you know, gator piss from <laughs> our boys over at Baker. <laughs> um, and so, um, that, we need that to develop and and create that contrast and that aesthetic quality of our Damascus steel. But um, some materials uh are the combination of some materials uh, is a little harsher than others and i think stainless is one of those especially if it's um i can't fuck i always i think it's like the 400 series stainlesses uh when that's used as cladding will leach a lot more carbon from the core um and it's not again i guess it's not necessarily about the leaching car uh, the the carbon but it's it's um yeah, just the, the the massive difference between the two materials, and, and it and it's that's what causes the galvanic corrosion. I'm not Wikipedia. You can look up. Just look up galvanic <laughs> corrosion, and it, there's a lot of great information on there to try to help understand. I don't know if it's necessarily around uh, steel on steel as much as like in electrical systems and stuff like that, um, but it still helps you to get an idea. But uh, so the nickel shim helps to act as kind of a barrier and that there is still a, a bit of a a little bit of a galvanic uh, issue between the nickel and the carbon steel but i from what i understand it's and i could have gotten wrong information or misunderstood because i don't have the best brain in the world um but that it helps to prevent some of that harsh reaction of the galvanic 
corrosion that can occur between some of the stainlesses and the core steel. But again, you also need for that to be even happening in the first place, you need that the knife has to be exposed to some sort of moisture and especially an electrolytic, like a salt water or some sort of solution um, to make that reaction become a lot more aggressive. Um, or something acidic like a like a citrus or something like that, even yeah. maybe. Yeah, exactly. Cutting cutting lemons, onions, um, all kinds of you know acidic fruits and foods. Yeah. Gotcha. I can think of at least two listeners that are going to DM me about this, and uh, I'm not going to say their names because when they DM me, I'm just going to be like, "I knew it was you. I knew you were going <laughs> to tell me about this." <laughs> I'm going to get a whole education on this, and I can't wait. I can't uh, wait too. I want to hear it too. All right. Well, cool, guys. Uh, we're an hour and twenty minutes in, so we're we're running a little bit long. We're going to switch over to an after show. Um, we have got two quick right questions from Morocco okay. before we go. All right, let's do it, Ryan. Number let's do one: it. If you could see us get any guest on, who would you want it to be? <sighs> and a side note to that question is: If you pick someone, can you help us get them on? <laughs> uh, I wish I knew this question was coming. Um, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think of, of somebody who's like um, an underrated maker that could use some props. Fuck. My blood. Well, you can my, always. So you, part of having ADHD. Yeah, I don't know if you guys are aware of this or struggle <laughs> with this, but when somebody tells you to think about something, your brain goes completely blank. And that's happening to me right now. And I'm really trying to like go through my mental Rolodex and nothing's coming up. So um, I'll figure Noah something I, out though. <laughs> Noah and I both have ADHD. Okay. So we'll let your primal brain think on that one. Okay. <laughs> Appreciate During it. During the next question, what's your favorite knife related podcast? Knife related oh podcast? <laughs> Am I supposed to say hustle and grind? No, you tell me the truth. <laughs> uh knife related podcast i actually i even stopped listening to my own podcast um i listen honestly i listen to a lot of self-help books lately i don't really listen to a lot of podcasts <laughs> okay <laughs> that's fair unfortunately um and also i would kick myself if i didn't ask you how cool was it to be on joe rogan uh it was very nervous making it was very cool uh he's he's a good dude and uh, i think a lot of it was some of that perfectionism coming through and trying to think out every scenario that might possibly happen or any kind of question that might be happening or or even just being stressed out about not having anything to say like where my brain just went blank just like a minute ago like i was worried that was going to happen and i was just going to go uh my brain just died and I don't know what to say right now. <laughs> so, uh, but he is obviously a very, he's very good at, uh, carrying a conversation and being a host in that way. And, and so I re once I kind of better wrapped my head around the fact that that's not my job, that's his job, then, um, I could relax a little bit more and just kind of be, be in the moment and, chat with him but it was really good i wish that we had more time it was a rare very like last second thing for me to actually end up going on his show but i wish i it was a little bit more planned out ahead of time because it would have been fun to play some pool against him uh, i know he loves playing pool and i love playing pool and he's very talented and i always like playing good make or good players and um yeah 
it would i also wish i wasn't i think i was running on 30 hours no sleep um and so when i got in i was a little bit delirious and um and then i did his podcast and then i got back to will brigham's house and i like passed out for <laughs> like an hour before we hung out with his family that evening and then slept hard that day that night so that would would have probably helped. I didn't even fucking promote knife talk. <laughs> that would have been the perfect opportunity to promote. And I just like, I had notes somewhere and I couldn't remember. I couldn't think like, where did I put those notes? I had some notes I was going to write and, about things I wanted to talk about. Um, and I just, I, I didn't, I didn't have them on me. And so I fucked up even, like I said, even being able to promote knife talk podcast, I was just getting ready to join knife talk. And uh, that would have been a great place to do that. But we've we've been doing all right. Yeah, you guys do all right. That reminds me. I was going to – I forgot to mention earlier on in the show, I wanted to uh, bring up your uh, personal Patreon so that we could try and help promote that. Oh, yeah. Um, this is going to be a long-ass show, and I guess that's just fine. But would you mind just talking a little bit about your Patreon and, and kind of giving the, the spiel for that real quick? Yeah. So the Patreon really is um, – it's a place for so let's see is it it's well it's what i i do my artisans of steel podcast there uh, i also do a private q a so essentially you kind of um your membership is paying for me to kind of be in your corner and for you to like come in and ask me com- questions about and have conversations about different topics and different kind of what we're doing here and honestly right now a lot that i get a few questions but I ha- i've had to make the the Q and A is especially a lot more topical so that I just had something to talk about. In fact, I, I mean, I, I'll show you, you guys, but since they can't see it on the podcast, but I drew this up. This is my process for making my braid mosaic Damascus. And so that was my topic for talking about this last, that actually was, what day was that? Tuesday? Wednesday? No, it was Friday. Um, on Friday. What was, was that yesterday? No, today's Sunday. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> We're right here with you, man. Um, we, we, we get it. <laughs> yeah. So I, I did, I think, two and a half, or sorry, not two and a half, an hour and a half alone. And it's just me just talking. And there's like a couple people that show up for the live stream. Um, and I'm very thankful for them coming in and, and helping to carry the conversation. Otherwise, I'm just talking to myself. Uh, and there have been a couple where it's almost that. And, um, but I, I'm really surprised. Oh, sorry. Anyways, the Patreon is a great opportunity to basically to have me in your corner and be like your personal mentor kind of in a way, your, your personal knife coach, not life coach. Uh, even though we do talk about <laughs> knife stuff every once in a while. Um, and, and I'm actually shocked. That I don't get more people asking me questions. And I think part of it is, um, probably like self-confidence stuff or, or worrying that no, this is going to be such a dumb question. But the reality is like, there's no dumb questions. If you don't know, you don't fucking know. That's just, that's how any information works. And so you don't know until you find out or somebody helps you find that out, answer your question. And, um, and I guarantee if you don't know, there's probably other people that don't know either. And so by one person ans- asking a question, it creates an opportunity for multiple to get value out of whatever the answer is. Um, but I don't actually get a lot of questions. I think my last Q and a had like one or two questions and like, this is me saying people, come on, I'm here to help you <laughs> Let's work through this shit. And uh, so, but I think also making it topical and we've, I've been doing the Q and a and the Patreon for last, Oh yeah. Two years. 
So there, there are close to 24 Q&As that are at least an hour and a half long. I think one, I went three and a half hours talking essentially to myself (laughs) about and I I have a tendency to hop all over the fucking place and lose track of where I'm at. Um, and my, my, my buddy, Michael poor, I gotta give him a shout out. He's red dragon forge on Instagram. He he's part of the Patreon. He helps kind of helps me. He's kind of a pseudo co-host that helps, helps me to stay, uh, on track of where I was going. Cause I, I go tangents all the fucking time side missions um so that's what that's what noah's here for is to because i do <laughs> keep the same everybody thing. in line <laughs> yeah. oh yeah I'll, I'll just go for an hour about start one place and i'm at a totally different place an hour later yeah. i told that to my wife the other day and she thought that that was hilarious that that i was the one who does that because this is the only part of my entire life where that even works at all you're in the and position that, just shows you that, that ryan's ryan's even worse than i am so there you go <laughs> tells you that so anyway so back to your patreon so basically you know people sign up for your their, your patreon mm-hmm. they have the opportunity to ask you questions they have access to those you know 24 or so uh q a's that you've already described um you just showed us a diagram you know giving away yeah. these secrets of how you do your your basket weave pattern and basically just being a, a coach for all the people on your Patreon to ask questions and be able to figure stuff out that. Yeah. I mean, you basically would, would spend so much time figuring it out on their own when they right. could just, you know. Yeah. You're paying for me to be kind of like your personal coach or your knife making coach, your knife coach. Um, and then, yeah, I do the artisans of steel. My artisans of steel podcast uh, is part of the Patreon and it, it goes into the Patreon first and being part of the Patreon lets you, at least at a certain level, lets you to be part of the conversation uh, and ask questions directly of some of these, you know, these world-class makers that have been featured in my Artisans of Steel calendar are now part of this conversation. And really like the conversational podcast has, has been beneficial for me personally, because it's my, like my way to get to connect with those people a lot better than because I know them superficially and through messaging here and there on Instagram, meeting them at blade show and stuff like that. But I've never sat down and had a conversation to understand like their background, their history and where do they come from and how did they even get into knife making and, and what are some of their greatest inspirations, all that stuff that you learn when you actually sit down and have a conversation with somebody over coffee or over beer. Um, and so that's really kind of what it's my own personal way of getting to have these (laughs) self, my selfish way of getting to have these conversations in a way. Well, selfish to begin with, but you're sharing it, you know, with all these, these people who otherwise wouldn't get to hear conversations like that. So that's, that's very cool. Yeah. And they're private in the Patreon for, I think the first couple months of after the recorded, and then they go live, um, into the public. So a lot of those podcasts for the last year and a half, at least are available for people to listen to. And some, some of those, I think I did Shane Taylor a few months back and that was a four and a half hour con conversation. Wow. But he's got wow. a lot of wisdom and knowledge to share. So it's great. It's great for us to, to have that. So, so the cheap asses that don't want to sign up for your Patreon, they can find it just on any, you know, Apple, Spotify. Yep. Anywhere like you can that. get your podcast. Yeah. Artisans of Steel. Cool. Yeah. Artisans of Steel. So shout out to autograph calendar. No big deal. (laughs) You just got a blade show. I met you at I I met you at Blade and I was in the middle of a panic attack, like right as I met you. And so I wanted to like ask for a calendar, but I was like seriously frozen. Blade show can be so overwhelming. 
it, it was it was unbelievable. Um, it's just so many freaking people there. And I the lack uh, of sleep yeah, I, is I, what got me. Yeah, I missed out on so much stuff. at Blade just because I just couldn't I just couldn't handle it. So I think I'm looking forward to next year. I'll be a little bit more prepared for. I what had to. Is. I really had to spend like a couple months out, kind of mentally, especially like the month before Blade, kind of starting to mentally prepare myself for the number of people that were going to be there and the lack of sleep that I was going to get, and trying to like trying to like keep in mind like don't drink too much because it feels you feel like dog shit the next day and there's still so much you want to see and do and people to talk to and stuff like that and while the drinking is a big part of blade show like being able to have those conversations or even get up in time to like see people's work before it's sold and gone off their table is a big part of blade show as well and you miss those opportunities or those opportunities lack when you're recovering from a high hangover um but and that has been my problem for the the you know i think last year was the sixth time that i'd been the blade show so the five times prior has been a <laughs> has been rough um but this last year was good and uh yeah i had to yeah kind of pep talk myself into like realizing you're going to spend a lot of time talking to people a lot more time than you spend in your normal every day. And there's thousands of people there. And, uh, so it was good though. It, that really helped me prepare my propel myself mentally before going to the show, just so that it, I, it still was overwhelming and a little bit of anxiety here and there, but it wasn't as bad as it would have been when, uh, if I hadn't done that work. Yeah. And you're in the Ameribraid booth last year and I was er Eric and Kevin did not leave anywhere for you guys to hide. It was like a big no. open booth. <laughs> <It was laughs> no, like, we're gonna go step into the green room real quick. No, there's yeah. nothing <laughs> <or> anything. <laughs> yeah, didn't we didn't even have chairs. Fuck. Should have well, I guess there were a couple down at the end. I wish I had a stool though to sit on. It was a lot of standing. The, they'll hear this, so Okay. Yeah. Great, <laughs> next year, guys. guys no, I, <laughs> yeah. I should have stolen a chair from somebody else's booth or something. I was anyway. pumped. I got one of those display stands. Oh, nice. Those articulating metal display stands that all your knives were on. Yeah. Yeah. They sent me one of those. It's pretty those badass. badass. Nice. That was a good. Yeah. Wow. All right, guys. I think we've been here long <laughs> enough. Ryan, is there anything else you want to say to the, the listeners of the main show before we head on over to the after show? Thanks everybody for listening. Uh, thank you, Mareko, for coming on. Uh, you've been my knife making idol since the beginning. The number one. It goes number you. One. It goes you, Noah Vashon, and Walter Soros. Nice. And uh, yeah, this is a uh, this is an honor. I I feel like I've been just starstruck and quiet this entire episode. But I was <laughs> I was trying to practice what Jeff Fader calls active listening. Oh yeah, where I was okay. just letting you talk. <laughs> that's good um, no i appreciate it it was very kind of you to say so and uh i'm just you know this work doing this work in knife making and i've uh has given me such a great sense of purpose and uh accomplishment and achievement and i've tried to do what i can to share what i've learned and what i know um to to help others try to find that for themselves honestly through this work uh of knife making and bladesmithing and all that shit and so if it if it helps somebody that's that's that means i'm doing something right yeah somewhere. no you do a fantastic job at it and you're genuinely humble 
which I found in the maker community. If you're not humble, we notice and everybody mm. notices. And there's always this like aura around you of he's just being nice to be nice. Mm. And you've never put out that vibe. I, I even when I met you at Blade, I, I was on three hours of sleep and I was like, oh, my God, this fucking Mareko. And I met you. <laughs> And in my head, I couldn't even absorb that I was meeting you. I was like, does my breast stink? I slept three hours last <laughs> night. Like, you know what I mean? So, yeah, you, you made me feel good. It was, it was nice. And you had heard of me, which was like, holy shit. I was like, what? I don't even forge. I'm a stock removal plebe. I'm like, this no. is crazy. I, people got to stop downplaying stock removal. I think stock removal is really important. It's Thank you. I, to me. Knowing how to properly grind a knife is way more important than forging a knife. There's so much shit you can fuck up in forging a knife. And in the, when it comes to having a high-performance finished product, it doesn't fucking matter if it was forged or not. I mean, it helps add to the story maybe a little bit, but it doesn't mean anything if it's you know, a tin can and you turn it, that piece of steel into a piece of garbage. Yeah. But a well-ground knife is way, 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 way more important. Thank you for saying that because I have caught a lot of shit for not forging. Like Ryan, you should learn to forge. You'd be good at it. Blah, blah, blah. It just doesn't, it's not. What did, what did I say to you, Noah? It's same outcome, extra steps. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it kind of is. It's like a yeah. weird flex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It just does. It doesn't add up in my monkey brain. I'm just like, <laughs> sure. Why would I, you know, but anyways, teach their own. Um, but I appreciate that. And I appreciate you for coming on and I appreciate Noah for putting up with me. <laughs> I appreciate it's it. It's been a long day. This is the second podcast I've recorded today. So okay. earlier this morning was, uh, Dennis Tyrell and Walter Sorrels. Hmm. So that's right. All you, uh, Patreon members got to hear about that happening. So, um, if you're listening to this, you've actually already listened to that episode cause it came out yesterday, which was Monday. Um, so if you haven't listened to that yet, go listen to that. That was uh, Ryan, Walter Sorrells, and Dennis Tyrell. And they announced the winner of the Samurai Challenge, the YouTube challenge um, that Dennis Tyrell puts on. Um, so if you haven't listened to that, you listen to this one first, go back and listen to that as well. Um, I'm going to because I wasn't there for it because I wasn't able to make it. Um, so I'm sure that was a great episode and I'm looking forward to listening to it. So I hope you all do too. Mareko, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. This has been great. Yeah. We've, uh, I think we've, we've dropped some some pretty awesome uh, knowledge on our listeners, as well as some uh, some 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 smackdowns to the naysayers, <laughs> uh, which uh, I really appreciate. Uh, so, guys, thank you so much. Thank you so much to all of our uh, Patreon members. We really suck, and we need to read your guys' names out. Um, obviously, this episode has gone further than we meant it to so we'll try and do that next week uh we love and appreciate all you guys who support us on patreon um if you want to you can go to uh, patreon.com slash hustle and grind for as little as one dollar a month you'll get to hear the after show that we're about to record and all of our past after shows as well um this one i can guarantee you will shock you and delight you in ways that you never thought possible and um, uh, at least we don't abuse you like Aubert, honor and toby do over on fire and steel so there's always oh yeah that. those those limeys over there are always always calling calling people bad names. I was called a penis several times um, this week. So uh, 
that that's neither here nor there. If you listen to Fire and Steel, you know what I'm talking about, and we'll leave it at that. So, all right, guys, thank you so much for listening. Morocco, thank you again for coming on. And uh, we really appreciate all you guys. Have a great week. Keep working at it. And uh, we see your guys' hustle out there, posting on Instagram and stuff like that. And we, uh, we love that you guys are working just as hard as we are. And uh, keep it up, and uh, we'll see you next week. Woo woo. Bye. Uh...